Lefty, he can't sing the blues all night long like he used to. The dusty poncho bit down south ended up and left his mouth. Everyone and welcome to the Stephen King cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and with this episode I'm reviewing 1987's follow-up to 1982's collaboration between Stephen King and George Romero, the EC Comics-inspired throwback anthology release, The Gooey, Gory, Goofy Creepshow 2. Creepshow and its sequel are beloved entries in the annals of horror, and it's unfortunate that by the time Creepshow 3 came around, it was released straight to video and had none of the original creative talent on board. So if you're ever thinking of seeing Creepshow 3, just avoid it. Tom Savini, the special effects guru who also appears in this movie as the creep. I don't know if it's the creep or the creeper. Um, it's one of the two. I know that the creeper is the Jeepers Creepers character. Um, so I've been calling him the creep. If I'm wrong, I apologize. Uh but Tom Savini here, he appears as uh, the creep, um, has always stated that Tales from the Dark Side... Um, the movie, he considers that Creepshow 3. Now, I should clarify that this statement doesn't really mean that Tales from the Dark Side is the second sequel to Creepshow, but I believe that he meant it that it's uh, the Creepshow's spiritual successor. Now, the Creepshow movies are just one example of horror anthologies, the most famous based on your preference, either being Tales from the Crypt or The Twilight Zone. Now, throughout pop culture, we've also seen The Outer Limits, Tales from the Dark Side, like I said before, Amazing Stories, The Night Gallery, the Masters of Horror series um, on HBO, and the constantly rebooting American Horror Story. In my review of Creepshow, I discussed my love of Mike Doherty's Trick or Treat film, which takes the elements that you love about uh, Creepshow, and I feel he improves upon them. Now, before I get any further with Creepshow 2, I just want to um, share a listener email um, from Bryant, who writes, I just wanted to share something with you about The Running Man. Well, not about The Running Man so much as about me, uh, but still the book movie play into the story. I was an Arnold Schwarzenegger fan during the mid to late 80s. No surprise there, many people were. My favorite was and is Conan... Conan the Barbarian, which I'd only seen on television in its edited-for-content format. But that was good enough for me. I'd seen The Terminator in a similar manner, and I think also Commando. Anyways, when Predator came out in 1987, I was 13, I really wanted to see it, but my mom would not let my dad take me to see in R-rated movies, so I was out of luck. My dad sort of took pity on me and bought me the novelization as a consolation prize. A few months later, the same year, a similar scenario, this time involving The Running Man. Again, I was denied viewing. Again, my dad supplied me with the novelization. Which, of course, was not a novelization at all, but the novel itself by Stephen King, writing as Richard Bachman. I read it, enjoyed it, and was very confused by the fact that Arnold killed himself by flying a plane into a building, figured out that the movie must be very different, and put it to the side. This is where you expect that the story continues by me finding other Stephen King books and reading them. Nope, didn't happen. 
Cue to the summer of 1990. I'm on vacation with my family at the beach, and my dad is talking about how when he gets back to town and can go to a bookstore, he's going to get a copy of this new book he'd just read a review of. It's a long novel about the end of the world and the battle between good and evil. It's called The Stand, and it was written by Steven Spielberg. Steven Spielberg, says I. I love Steven Spielberg. This, at least, was true. I did and do. Hell, I even read and enjoyed his novel that served as a sequel to E.T., um, it was called E.T., The Book of the Green Planet, and I think that William Kotzwinkle actually wrote it based on a story by Spielberg, but hey, close enough. So, when we get back to town, I visit a used bookstore. It was within walking distance and was therefore my first step on any book-finding ventures to see if they had a copy of the book. Did they? You bet they did. Only, as it turned out, it wasn't written by Steven Spielberg. It was written by Stephen King. Imagine my disappointment. It was considerable. I made a grumpy face and started to put the book down and leave. Then I remembered The Running Man. At some point in the intervening years, I'd seen the movie and enjoyed it, and then went back and reread the book to see if it was as different as I'd remembered. And the second time, I liked the book a lot more. Not, not enough to care who'd written it, but enough to remember the name Stephen King when standing there in the bookstore and holding a copy of a book I'd been led to believe was written by my favorite director. I remember that I'd read another book by the guy who actually wrote The Stand, and that it had been good. So I considered for a moment. I looked at the cover of the book, that timeless image of the man's face and the crow's face melting into one. I read the back cover. I thought to myself, you know, this sounds pretty good, even if it wasn't written by Spielberg. I decided to take a chance. I bought it. Then I read it. I've been reading Stephen King ever since. Like you, I've had the occasional ebbs and flows in my degrees of fandom, but from the moment I got star on that novel, there was no going back. The people who get credit for this, my dad, Arnold Schwarzenegger, and Steven Spielberg. Pretty cool. Bryant. Bryant, great story, man. I really appreciate it. I, I just, I love the stories of how we all got into Stephen King um, and that one, that one's a topper. So anybody, if you haven't done so already, feel free to write in at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. Um, as you know, I, I, I really enjoy, um, you know, reading everyone's, uh, you know, emails on the air. And if you haven't done so, feel free to head on over to iTunes and leave a review and, and subscribe uh, to Stephen King Cast. will go a long way in helping out this particular podcast. All right, guys, back to Creep Show 2. So, introduction, um, the analysis. Uh, like the previous movie, it begins with an interaction between the creep and a young boy. And what's clear here is that we have a very different version of who this character is, the creep, I mean. In the original, he was a bona fide skeletal creature. And here he's been reimagined as a deformed human. He's still creepy, but he's not the monster that we knew him as. What's interesting is that between his penchant for bad jokes and his constant puns, he functions as a precursor to HBO's Tales from the Crypt, which will hit pop culture in two years from now, or from two years from, from the point of the release of this movie. Now, I thought I had to go and check because I thought that when I, I started, you know, rewatching Creepshow 2 here and I see what they've done to the creep, I said, oh, you know what, they're, they're just... They're just copying the success of Tales from the Crypts and, and what they're doing with, you know, what, what they're doing with... Uh, Cryptkeeper, but I was kind of shocked to see that this predated um, Tales from the Crypt by, by two years. What they keep, though, is the focus of the comic book nature to the storytelling uh, with another animated opening. And the music is horrendous, by the way. The opening to the first movie relied on the classic tinkling bone-like sounds of piano, whereas this is all synth. And I should note right up front, guys, um, this is just a watered-down sequel. I mean, the first was a true collaboration between King and Romero, and here, not so much. I mean, King provides the stories, but Romero sits out on the director's duty on this one. 
And the first uh, story that we get is Old Chief Woodenhead. Wikipedia. An elderly couple named Ray and Martha Spruce in a small fictional southwestern town called Dead River oversees a general goods store whose decor includes a cigar store Indian named Old Chief Woodenhead on the front porch. They are humbled to see their old rundown town coming to a bittered end. The Spruces are then visited by Native American elder named Benjamin Whitemoon from a local tribe who gives them turquoise jewelry, which are his first his tribe's sacred treasures as collateral for the debt the tribe has incurred. The elder bids them and Old Chief Woodenhead, who nods to him, briefly startling him, farewell and returns to his tribe. Later that night, the Spruces are subject to a vicious robbery led by Benjamin's strange nephew, Sam, armed with a shotgun and his two friends, Andy and Fat Stuff. After ransacking the store, Sam demands that Ray hand over his turquoise. The Spruces refuse and are fatally shot by Sam. The three thugs then leave in their car and begin preparations to run away to Hollywood, California, where the vain Sam expects to become a movie star, in part due to his long, dark hair. Old Chief Woodenhead then comes to life after they leave and goes on a vicious warpath to kill them and avenge the murdered spruces. After brutally fading Fat Stuff and Andy, Old Chief Woodenhead corners Sam in his home with Sam being able to fight backs as the shells from his shotgun have no effect on this wooden assailant. Sam attempts to lock himself in the bathroom and escape through a window, but Old Chief Woodenhead breaks through the wall, grabs Sam by his long hair, pulls him through the wall, and scalps him. When Benjamin Whitemoon wakes up in the morning, he finds a bag containing the turquoise jewelry by his side. He visits the Spruce's general store to find Old Chief Woodenhead on his pedestal, holding his nephew's bloody scalp, a blood-stained knife, and fresh war paint among uh, adorning the chief's face. Now aware of what has happened to the Spruce's and what Chief Woodenhead has done to killers, Benjamin wishes the old warrior peaceful afterlife and drives away. Analysis the first movie featured the Naked Guns Leslie Nielsen, and this movie features the Naked Guns George Kennedy. We get a two on the nose beginning spelled out um, that spells out the heart of these two characters and their financial dilemma. The financial dilemma is heightened when Benjamin Whitemoon gives Ray ancient Native American treasures as collateral. The nobility of these two men is presented um, front and center to show the low qualities of the renegade, rebellious younger Whitemoon, Sam Whitemoon, whose gang vandalizes the shop later that night. Now, I know the first movie was full of goofy comedy, but this whole scene just drags on and has one foot firmly in soap opera dramatics. And I'm not sure if it's intentional or not. It ends with Sam Whitemoon murdering Ray and his wife and taking the Native American valuables. This causes Old Chief Woodenhead, the statue in front of the store, to officially have enough. Like an action hero, he dips his figures to draw the war paint Ray didn't have time to finish earlier and enact revenge. And then, you know, yeah. Woodenhead goes and he just murders everyone. And that's the story. There's not much to it, and I don't really like it. Up next is The Raft. Four college students, Deke, Laverne, Randy, and Rachel, go swimming in a desolate lake far from civilization. As they make their way to a wooden raft, they are terrorized by a floating black blob resembling an oil slick that grabs a hold of Rachel and consumes her. The students panic. Deke plans to swim to shore so he can bring back help, but before he can, the blob seeps through the cracks and pulls Deke through the raft, killing him. Randy and Laverne evade the creature until it gives up trying to grab them from under the raft. Randy and Laverne are afraid to fall asleep and fear that the creature will attack. They manage to sleep, and Randy is the first to wake up, relieved to find that he and Laverne made it through the night. He begins caressing Laverne's sleeping body and fondling her breasts. She awakes, screaming in agony, as the creature is revealed to have seeped through the cracks and has covered the right half of her face, much to Randy's horror. As the oil-like blob pulls her off the raft and begins consuming her, Randy jumps off to swim to shore. He ultimately makes it, barely escaping the creature, and yells, I beat you! However, the creature rises up from the water like a wave and engulfs Andy. 
returns to the lake with no evidence of the four students even visiting the lake other than their car. The camera reveals a no-swimming sign barely visible from behind some vegetation. Analysis. It pretty much follows King's original Skeleton Crew short story faithfully. Now, what I don't understand is their complete unpreparation for a trip out to a seasonal lake for the distinct purposes of swimming. And I'm mainly talking about quiet Rachel, who seems very out of place here, who jumps into the lake wearing a sweatshirt. What she's done here is effectively reduce any chance of warming up after stepping out of the water due to the fact that she's drenched with the only warm clothing item in her perception. Possession. It, oh, it also has perhaps the most unbelievably forced moment of tension when Randy is trying to uh, get Laverne onto the raft and can't do it even though she's fully capable of doing it herself. It's meant to invoke anxiety as she's still in the water with the creeping thing um, that only Randy is aware of at this point. Now Rachel is the first victim. Well, I'm not a big fan of the thing's design when it's just floating there. The effects for each attack, they're incredible. You can see the skin instantaneously begin to get eaten away. And her rising out of the lake moaning, it hurts, it hurts. It's disturbing. Deke is the next to go in a striking moment being ripped through the boards of the raft itself. And just as I said in my review of the short story, this is the moment to swim away. But they don't. And then the director makes the boneheaded decision to turn our main character into an opportunistic date rapist. It is so out of place. And the fact that its he's the creepiest thing in a story about a flesh-eating lake monster really says something. So I don't really have too much else to say about it other than it's, it's very much of its time in terms of the gender politics. Um, for my deeper analysis here, um, you'll probably want to go read my um, or listen to my review of the... Uh, skeleton crew short story and up last is the hitchhiker an adulterous businesswoman named annie lansing gets up from bed after sleeping with a gigolo realizing that she has to get home before her wealthy attorney husband is to avoid suspicion annie hops into her mercedes-benz and heads for home several miles away as she speeds down a dark road she accidentally kills a hitchhiker seeing that no one witnessed the incident she takes off Shortly after she leaves, the area of the incident is crowded with passerbys who report the hit and run to the police. Miles away from the scene, Annie thinks about what she has done and the consequences involved. She ultimately concludes that no one has anything on her and thinks that everything will be fine. Before she can continue, however, the hitchhiker she has killed suddenly appears outside her widow and utters, Thanks for the ride, lady, a line he repeats throughout the story. Annie speeds off in terror, but everywhere she goes, the hitchhiker always reappears. She repeatedly runs him over, hurls him off the top of her car, slams his body into trees, etc. And he only gets more and more battered and bloody without dying. At one point, he pulls up his sign reading, You killed me! Annie eventually loses control of her car and drives off the road, down a hill into a tree, knocking herself out. She awakens a short while later, not seeing the hitchhiker anywhere in sight and believes it to be a bad dream. She gets back on the road and drives home, succeeding in getting before her husband. She begins to step out of her car. The hitchhiker appears from under her car, completely mangled from the trip, still uttering thanks for the ride, lady. He attacks her as she vainly attempts to fight him off. Later, Annie's husband, the same man who visited, reported the hit and run, finally arrives home to find her in her car, dead from carbon monoxide poisoning caused by her still-running car and the hitchhiker's sign around her neck with the sign saying Dover. Analysis. This one sucks. But at least we get a visit from Mr. King himself. The hitchhiker is more comical than anything else, and there's an absurdity 
intentional or not, I'm not sure, um, of the repeated line of, thanks for the ride, lady, which, as we all know, is a Stephen Kingism. Epilogue. As the creep is about to drive away, he spots Billy being chased by the bullies. Billy leads his pursuers into a vacant lot of swarming with out-of-control plant growth. As he rides into what seems to be a dead end, the bullies move in to pummel him, only to learn that the bulb they smashed was not the first one Billy had ordered, as a quintet of giant fly traps emerge from the surrounding weeds and devour the thugs one by one. The spectacle is witnessed by the creep, who cackles in glee as he drives off in his delivery truck to deliver the latest issue of Creepshow to another town. In a post-credits scene, the following text appears. Juvenile delinquency is the product of pent-up frustrations, stored-up resentments, and bottled-up fears. It is not the product of cartoons and captions, but the comics are a handy, obvious, uncomplicated scapegoat. If the adults who crusade against them would only get as steamed up over such basic issues of delinquency as parent parental ignorance, indifference, and cruelty, they might discover that comic books are no more menace than Treasure Island or Jack the Giant Killer from Collier's Magazine, 1949, which I'm sure was a response to the growing anti-comic movement that um, peaked with um, seduction of the innocent. Um, so my analysis here is... Um, I just gotta say that the decision to animate these sequences was just bad, bad decision. I mean, what worked well in the first movie does not work well at all. It just doesn't work. It's bad. Bad animation, um, misunderstanding of what made the, the animation work the first time around. Um, and in all areas, I just think that Creepshow 2 is a miss. I don't like it. I don't like... I enjoyed Creepshow 1. Creepshow 2 was kind of a slog to get through. I, I didn't really like any of the adaptations with... I guess the, the raft being the best, but um, just the, the kind of creepy, date-rapey, molestation parts of it just kind of really weird me out. Um, but uh, the animation I don't like. I don't like the, the reinvention of the creep. Um, I don't like the fact that it's not a pure collaboration between Romero and King. Um, just not, not a big fan. Not a big fan of Creepshow 2. Again, I would recommend not Creepshow 2, but I would recommend Michael Doherty's uh, Trick or Treat. So go out and watch Trick or Treat. Avoid Creepshow 2. And uh, until next time, maybe have long days and pleasant nights. And I'll see you here for next episode where M-O-O-N spells Stephen King cast.